Can you hear me in the back? Yes? So the theme I would like to address tonight is equanimity, equanimity and sensitivity. Uh, if we think of it, since the very beginning of this practice, we start practicing equanimity because we are asked to practice non-judgmental attention. Now, when and if attention is really, really non-judgmental, it is equanimous attention. But this is going to be very brief, but that brief moment is a moment of um, equanimous attention. So, uh, the practice of awareness, the, pra the, the basic practice of mindfulness itself, is already and fully a practice of equanimity. So, equanimity is not uh, something important, but uh, aside, uh, after, it's now, it's immediate. Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, <clears throat> the structure of the practice in itself. It is in the structure of the practice itself. Um... Well, to say the least, uh, to practice non-judgmental attention is, uh, uh, is simple, but it is not easy, and we all know that. If we, um, if we think of it, it's as though, you know, suppose we are attempting or are about uh, attempting or we are about uh, to be attentive in the best possible way, there is like a, um, an enormous uh, a stuff around our intention uh, to be non-judgmentally attentive. In other words, all our reactivities are ready or our judgments are ready to infiltrate our attention. And um, maybe we mentioned this be, uh, bef uh, before, but I think that uh, the idea of of uh, um, this having this expression, non-judgmental attention, I think is helpful because it 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 um, reminds us of the central role of equanimity in a very practical way, non-judgmental. But as I said, uh, all our reactivities and judgments um, constantly infiltrate um, our practice. And on the other hand, uh, we practice exactly in order to do something about this situation, about this constant uh, attack of um, our reactivity, this um, great power um, creativity, um, and so 
um, the um, non-judgmental attention, if we think of it, is a fundamental practice uh, for two reason which are reasons which are um, um, very much interconnected. The first reason is that um, non-judgmental um, awareness um, goes into the direction of uh, understanding, wisdom, is meant to develop wisdom. And the second reason uh, why uh, non-judgmental uh, awareness is important is that it is a practice of equanimity. So, through our practice, through our Dharma practice, through our mindfulness practice, we're trying to develop understanding and equanimity contextually. Closely linked together. Um, we might we might even say that the more our attention becomes equanimous, the more the deeper our understanding. Less colored by our reactivity. The ripening or the full development of um, awareness of mindfulness is called Sati Sampajanya, intuitive awareness. Um, in other words, awareness ripens into understanding, into wisdom. And this is a uh, um, very crucial uh, development. Mm. We might, uh, there, is a, there is an expression I like very much, is spiral learning. And uh, so, we can imagine that through uh, awareness and understanding, we go around and around um, something, situations, life, you know, relationship, and not as an intentional exercise, but, but it, because it's our practice. And our practice is a spiral learning. Also, in terms of Dharma talk, we are seeing always the same things. Have you noticed that spiral... <laughs> Spiral learning, because we have to co go back again and again and again, and something deepens. Um, you know, turning, turning our awareness towards what arises. Uh, we also often say, uh, learning to see things as they are. See how, how deeply equanimous this expression is. The things as they are. 
and maybe the first thing that we hear such expressions, we we think, well, what's you know, what's great about that? The things as they are. We already know. We want something more. But that's a delusion. We don't know how things are. We don't know the things as they are. That's, you know, it's equals truth. It seems it takes a while to realize truth. Um... Of course, um, we sh- the idea is not to uh, idealize um, mindfulness, sati, awareness, and um, um, you know, thinking uh, that unless we develop uh, like a continuous flow of awareness, uh, nothing happens. Um, um, don't think this is realistic. Um, not constant, but not infrequent either. There should be, how, how could we say it, what develops is a certain readiness, a certain interest uh, to access awareness. Um, at first it's just a task, it's something to be, um, to remind ourselves of, and then it becomes more of a as I said, of a readiness, of a, uh, an interest to access um, mindfulness. Uh, often we like, we like to light up mindfulness. At other times we don't like um, getting aware of something painful uh, stuff. But through practice we learn that we better be aware of uh, difficult situations. It's a much better way of dealing with them. So, well, inclination is the word. Um, Bhikkhus, whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind, the Buddha says. So if we cultivate the intention to be mindful, there are good chances that we become mindfulness or something close to it. Uh, And, of course, this goes both directions. We can cultivate uh, unskillful uh, inclination can be passionately bent on cultivating unskillful inclinations, and we become unskillful inclinations. There's a law here. And so, cultivating the intention to be mindful, whenever we decide to sit, it's a little step in uh, cultivating the intention to be mindful. Whenever we just um, wake up, the possibility to be aware, and uh, we accept the invitation of our minds, yes, I want to be aware. 
as the inclination manifesting itself. And it, it's got to happen more and more over time. Mm. Of course, the idea is supporting, supporting uh, awareness with all the factors of the path, of the Eightfold Path. which is a little bit different from uh, what sometimes see um, these days of um, an use, a practice of mindfulness, period. No other elements accompanying it. Like, you know, in the Eightfold Path, we have um, strong emphasis on ethics, um, a strong emphasis on right intention, the cultivation of right intention. And uh, personally, I couldn't conceive of extrapolating you know, mindfulness from this contest or from a similar contest. So equanimity is crucial for our understanding. And um, we might safely say that our understanding uh, can deepen to the extent that uh, there is more and more equanimity. Um, when, when we talk about wisdom or wise understanding, we obviously mean an, some, some form of new and deeper understanding. But this takes, this takes more and more equanimity, which brings clarity. Without equanimity, we don't have clarity. We have the mass of habitual... Uh, um, concepts and emotions and reactivities which influence whatever we we see, we hear, we say. And so we what we do, what do we understand? We understand always the same thing. Because, you know, we, we, we have all these cherished ideas in our minds. And um, we see through those ideas, through those reactions, through um all this material. And we can hardly talk about new understanding, or deeper understanding. Sometimes we do, but we don't really mean it. You know, oh, it was deep. What was deep? You know, I, have a de I had a deep sitting. I never understood what that people mean, what is a deep <laughs> sitting. <laughs> so if we happen to become less predictable, you know, we shouldn't worry. I think it's a good sign. Because instead of, you know, understanding uh, always in the same way, and therefore, you know, talking and, 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 and um, 
uh, acting always in the same way, if something changes, if we become less predictable, provided we stay within the limits and the borders of um, ethical behavior, of course. So, I think it's uh, um, fair to say that equanimity has a purifying effect on our uh, mind. You know, purifying effects uh, in terms of uh, purifying ourselves ourselves from attachment. Attachment means also aversion and ignorance, but for some reason, uh, when the Buddha has to use just one word, he often chooses tanha, tanha. he often chooses uh, attachment. I think, I suspect that it is because this um, uh, attachment is a primordial uh, energy. Um, and it manifests in many ways. Uh, and it's good that we um, uh, get in touch, uh, although it cannot be, can be not pleasant, with this uh, powerful energy. Um, you know, it's different. Powerful energy is different from uh, thinking of attachment as uh, some, some sort of a f- a flaw that decent people do not have, um, and we have it, but uh, other people don't. Uh, I am attached, poor me. Um, you know, this is the mind is attached. The conditioned mind is intrinsically attached. It's full of craving. Therefore, and therefore we suffer. So. Um, you know, purification, uh, gradual uh, purification from attachment is something absolutely major. And it takes uh, non-judgmental attention, uh, understanding, and equanimity. They're all connected. The other night, we say that uh, wisdom, in some sense, in some way, is not complete without love. Or in uh, the Buddhist tradition itself, it is sometimes said that uh, wisdom and compassion are the two wings of, libera- of liberation. Two wings of liberation. Now, this is confirmed by the fact that equanimity, upekka in Pali, upeksha in Sanskrit, uh, is the core of loving kindness, of compassion, of uh, um, uh, altruistic joy. Metta, karuna, and mudita, you know, these expansive uh, practices, these loving practices, um, are based on equanimity. Because if they aren't, they keep being basically self-centered, which is not the idea. 
the idea is to develop, let, let, let's take meta, something which in time, in, with time and practice, becomes more and more unconditional. You remember? Uh, a dear one, a neutral one, a difficult person, or in the traditional language, the enemy. You know? So this means uh, that the aim uh, um, is unconditionality, which means equanimity. How can you practice metta or love your enemy, as it is said in Christianity, without equanimity? It um, would be false. So, equanimity uh, is intrinsic to awareness. Equanimity is intrinsic to wisdom. Equanimity is intrinsic to love in its various forms. So no wonder that equanimity has such a high status in the Buddhist teaching. Yeah, of course we can, uh, we can use, it's very good if we use metta, for instance, as an antidote uh, uh, to fear. The Buddha, it is said that he taught metta on one occasion where a number of monks were afraid of a certain place. But we, it's good also to remember that there is much more to it. In addition to being a good antidote to fear, if we as the Buddha says, abundantly develop metta, then there is much more to it. It is a protection, it is a good antidote, and can become appamana, which is without limits, boundless. So equanimity has such a central place in the, um, we, we've been seeing a little bit why, such a central role in the uh, teachings of the Buddha. And yet, and yet, um, there are misunderstandings about equanimity. Or, or it is, it is um, understood on a, On a, on a small level, let's see, um, if we say, you know, that, that person, um, oh, it's a rather um, stable, balanced person, has uh, got some equanimity, um, um, tends to be <clears throat> impartial, uh, that's fine, that's very good, but again, there is much more to equanimity in addition to uh, a basic uh, balance. Um, but in our language, well, equanimity is a translation. In our language, in our Western languages, equanimity has not in the least the status that it has in the Buddhist teachings. So this is why um, I guess it should be um, 
explained and made an object of spiral learning, because otherwise, uh, you know, equanimity. What is it, equanimity? You know, it's nothing, nothing. Uh, you know, um, really dramatic. You know, um, powerful. Seems to be something modest. Uh, In addition to uh, this um, use, limited uh, use, limited uh, meaning of equanimity, there are gross misunderstandings. And we can say a few words about that. However, before, I would like to read a quote from a book written by Karen Armstrong, and the book is called Buddha. It's a biography of the Buddha. The Buddha may have been impersonal, but the state he achieved inspired an extraordinary emotion in, in all who met him. The constant, even relentless degree of gentleness Fairness, equanimity, impartiality, and serenity acquired by the Buddha touch a chord and resonate with some of our deepest yearnings. People were not repelled by his dispassionate calm, not daunted by his lack of preference for one thing, one person over another. Instead, they were drawn to the Buddha and flocked to him. An extraordinary emotion in all who met him. The equanimity of the Buddha touch a chord and resonate with some of our deepest yearning. So is there such a gap between, as it often believed, between equanimity and emotions? Now, we, we begin by just asking a question. Now, when the path develops, you know, very practically speaking, the field of our emotions and of our reaction to our emotions that's changing. And the key to this change is the fact that by virtue of equanimous attention, we learn to be less identified with our emotions. That's the big change learning to be less identified with our emotions. Um, there is a law where there is true awareness, equanimous awareness, there cannot be identification. We are equanimously, non-judgmentally aware of our irritation, so we cannot 
uh, feel that we are our irritation. Often, though, as soon as awareness fades, identification comes back. And we are again our irritation. We feel fully represented by our irritation. We are proud of our irritation. We believe whatever the irritation says, again, you know, in the old, in the old trap. But that moment, when we were really aware of it, we were free, we were free from that uh, irritation. But then it all ended and we hugged again our irritation, <laughs> happily. <laughs> it's interesting that um, a great teacher that Larry has mentioned um, um, in, in the past few evenings, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, um, <clears throat> calls our attention upon a word in the scriptures which is the almost exact equivalent of non-identification. Atamayata, which literally means not being made of. So if we think identification is a contemporary word, we are right, but the concept is much older. Um, so we, to the extent that we are identified with an emotion, we are run by that emotion. We, we don't experience that emotion we don't encounter that emotion. We compulsively think out of that emotion. We think about that emotion. But this is anything but knowing the emotion, experiencing the emotion. Actually, it is a barrage not to experience the emotion. You know, mental proliferation is very much connected with emotion, but at the same time, it is a barrier to experience the emotion. But this is why uh, sometimes we um, get surprised in meditation, because the mind becomes more silent and emotions are felt in a stronger way. But we are less, uh, you know, uh, um, wrapped up in, in proliferation. So we learn to be, we might say that we, we learn to the practice to be more in a relationship with, with the emotions. That's what, what makes us freer from them and stronger uh, with emotions. The, fa the fact that we are not dominated by them. And remember, uh, the other night we mentioned this uh, key word, nibida, this quiet rebellion which comes uh, slowly at one point. And uh, it's, um, you know, uh, we start getting uh, tired of fueling negative emotions. 
And this is a very powerful uh, support for the practice of non-identifying ourselves with negative emotions. Because we see through the practice that they are suffering, period. So more and more, we wake up. We become less stupid, if you don't mind the word. And uh, we think, why should I foster my suffering? Why on earth should I actively and passionately uh, fuel my suffering? And so there is nibida. There is a uh, this what's been called serene disenchantment towards destructive activities, which is probably the first deep in this case. The word is. A, the right one, realization that they are destructive. We felt it on our skin. Now, what about what about uh, non-afflictive, because so far we've been talking about af- what, they, what, what negative or afflictive emotions, but what about non-afflictive or positive emotions? There is work. There is work to be done, and more um, non-identification, more equanimity, more awareness means that after you. <laughs> Um, means that there is less less ego in the positive or non-afflictive emotions. There can be a lot of ego in a positive emotion. The fact that it's positive is pleasant. But say, what a contrast if we think of uh, a joyous excitement, which, however, is narcissistically blind to other people. What a difference. How different from a quiet joy which naturally uh, takes care of other people. Uh, It's aware of other people. It's not forgetful of other people. Actually, because of this quiet joy, more uh, caring can come. Two kinds of joy, completely different. One is totally autistic, you know, it's totally narcissistic, and the other one is open, it's warm, it's warm. So, there is work to be done And uh, another, another area, painful, painful emotions. Like for instance, um, a loss or a separation. Probably we're going to feel the pain. We're going to feel the suffering 
of a loss, of a separation, if, you've been, if we, we have been in the practice for a long time, in a more acute way, because practice makes us more sensitive, although we shall specify in, 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 in what sense. So we, we feel it more, we feel it more strongly, the pain. But, there is a big but. Uh, surprisingly, the first times we realize it, there is one with that pain, within that pain that we feel, it manifests a compassionate side which we didn't expect. And the more we practice, the more this tender touch tends to manifest itself. We suffer, we suffer a lot, but we feel at the same time, we have some feeling of compassion for the other people involved in the same loss. And generally, there is a sense of compassion. You see, uh, intertwined with the suffering and the pain, there is a sense of compassion, which is very, very different from a hard pain, from a hard suffering, bitter. You know, we all know how bitter a suffering can be. This is, yeah, you know, we, we're talking about a strong suffering, but this strong suffering, instead of being bitter, is compassionate. Same name, suffering, but very different qualities. In order to deepen a little bit um, um, what we're saying about um, um, equanimity and its role, its place in the teachings and uh, in the practice, uh, we might wonder what happens um, to highly developed beings, like, for instance, the Buddha. So this is an interesting picture of um, the Buddha teaching. And uh, here is the situation. His disciples do not want to hear or give ear or exert, uh, exert their minds to understand. They err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. With that, the Tathagata, the name of the Buddha, a way of calling him, with that, the Buddha is not satisfied. In case you think the Buddha is constantly smiling, <laughs> the Tathagata is not satisfied and feels no satisfaction. He reiterates it. Yet, he dwells unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. Uh, the word unmoved translates a word, a Pali word, which means 
no afflictions. In other words, no aversion, no attachment, no confusion, zero. Mindful and fully aware and no kilesas at all. This is, this is remarkable, if you think of it. He is deeply dissatisfied because it, you know, it says twice. So it means that, well, but there's no aversion. Just imagine having a, a, a crowd of uh, disciples, of students, and they just don't care about what you're saying. <laughs> and you are not satisfied, but there's not a thought of, you know, these, da 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 Or poor me, you know, <clears throat> nothing. And the same when um, It's the, it's the, the text describes the opposite um, uh, situation. Everyone is listening and uh, everyone understands. And the Buddha is satisfied. He, he knows satisfaction. And again, he has no uh, kilesas, is, uh, uh, is unmoved, and is uh, mindful and, uh, uh, you know, fully understanding. Again, this is a, um, this is rare. You know, in other words, there is no idea of, uh, you know, I'm great, uh, and, uh, you know, these people can understand what I am saying. They too, they too, they are great too. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. And, a final and crucial statement, the Buddha, remaining free from both satisfaction and dissatisfaction, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. So he is, he got dissatisfied, he got satisfied, but he's free from satisfaction and dissatisfaction. Doesn't have kilesa, doesn't have intoxicants around that. So can you imagine? You know, he has sensitivity. He's sensitive. And at the same time, he's free. Satisfied, dissatisfied, but free from satisfaction and dissatisfaction. I think it's very, it's hard to conceive, but it's very inspiring at the same time. is sensitive and equanimous. In case we think that equanimity means flattening, you know, zero. It's not so.
And there are, well, just another five minutes and then I'll be at the end. This is equally impressive. First is, is a, a certain teaching, a certain sutta where the Buddha um, recounts um, like his um, spiritual story, spiritual biography, so to speak. Um, and so first he remembers when he was very actively engaged in uh, severe asceticism. And he talks about the painful feelings that this kind of practices were creating in him. And then he says, But such painful feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. He's not denying the painful feelings. They were painful. But it adds, they did not invade my mind and remain. They would pass through. Painful. But, you know, you, you didn't get stuck with them, which is the typical effect of identification. It was not identified at all. When, a little bit, um, the same, a few pages, he gets to the night of um, his enlightenment, which um, goes in uh, three phases, at each phase, including the third and last phase, the total liberation, he talks about the pleasant feelings that he was having. And he adds, but such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. He was free from unpleasant feelings and from pleasant feelings. There is something beyond pleasant and unpleasant. And the Buddha is very coherent. At one point, he is faced by something which is uh, described as radiant and luminous equanimity, a very high stage of equanimity. And the Buddha thinks, well, I may join this equanimity with the high stage of uh, jhana, of samadhi, and this way it could last a long time. But then he realizes that this is attachment. So, what happens is that he lets go, you know, the supreme non-attachment. He lets go of the radiant and luminous equanimity. It's the highest equanimity. Let go of itself. And what happens at that point? He reaches Nibbana. After this supreme act of, uh, you know, freedom, It's very beautiful. 
At this point, he does not cling to anything in this world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he attains Nibbana. I would only like to ha- add uh, the words on this, on this uh, topic of sensitivity and equanimity, the words of a great contemporary master, Krishnamurti. Just a couple of brief quotes. The mind has become deeply insensitive since it is so worried about itself. However, the mind sees it is necessary for it to become completely sensitive. Mind you, the word that he chooses, completely sensitive. Because without sensitivity, there is no intelligence, and therefore there is no love. Do you know what it is to be religious? It has nothing to do with temple bells, though they sound nice in the distance, nor with pujas, nor with the ceremonies uh, of the priests and all the rest of the ritualistic nonsense. To be religious is to be sensitive to reality. To be religious is to be sensitive to reality. Your total being, body, mind, and heart, is sensitive to beauty and to ugliness, to the donkey tied to a post, to the poverty and filth in this town, to laughter and tears, to everything about you. From this sensitivity, for the whole of existence, springs goodness, love, and without this sensitivity, There is no beauty, though you might have talent, be very well dressed, ride in an expensive car. There is no beauty. Can we have a moment of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.